Welcome to this week's Energy Show. We as an economy can deploy solar in two ways, either centrally using the existing utility model as we've got power lines going from central power plant all the way out to the edge of the grid or in a distributed fashion where there's lots of little mini power plants all around. Now, distributed generation or DG is in many ways a more cost-effective, more reliable way of distributing power. Basically, we can have millions of small rooftop power plants and anyone with a sunny roof, whether it's a business or a homeowner or a, a local government, can generate their own power. Basically, they can be locally self-reliant. Yeah, I think about this at a high level. It kind of reminds me of the way the computer industry has evolved. 40, 50 years ago, we had central mainframes and mini computers, and people had dumb terminals, and basically you would just access data on that central computer. Now, everybody's got smart computers, PCs, laptops, phones, and, and the computing power has really, really been distributed. And we just kind of rely on the central data for information and for backup purposes. So we're looking at a real big change in the way power is being distributed around the world. And in fact, there's an organization called the Institute for Local Self-Reliance or ILSR, that really focuses on these big picture issues of energy generation, utility power, and, and solar. And my guest this week is John Farrell. He's a senior researcher with ILSR. And he's best known for his research and papers on the economic and environmental benefits of local ownership of decentralized renewable energy. I've been reading John's works for several years about net metering, the ITC, and changes in the utility business, really driven by these new technologies and new paradigms for distributing and generating power. I think he's one of the very best thinkers we have and best communicators on these new subjects. So welcome to the show, John. Thanks so much. I hope I can live up to the billing. Oh, that's nothing you, you already have for anybody who's read your work. So first, why don't you tell us a little bit more about the ILSR? Yeah, well, we've been around for just over 40 years, um, and our focus has always been on economic opportunity in local economies, how we capture more of the local energy dollar in the case of energy, but we work across a lot of other sectors of the economy. And so our approach in energy has really always been to look at what are the opportunities as we get to renewable energy. And then, as you mentioned, as energy technology has been decentralizing how communities can capture more of their energy dollar locally. So, and what does that really mean in terms of technologies and applications that individuals, companies, and local communities can take advantage of? How can that be applied in practice? That's a great question. I like to look at the 10,000-foot level first, which is to say that we have about $360 billion a year we as Americans spend on electricity. And we are seeing technologies like solar power that we can put on our rooftops ways to manage energy like smart thermostats that we control with our smartphones, all sorts of these technologies, energy storage, electric vehicles that are allowing the decisions about how we use energy, how we produce energy to be made at a local level, whether that's putting solar on a roof or charging our electric car at night to get lower rates or what have you. And what that means is that $360 billion we're spending, instead of going out into the world, out of our communities to the large generators of we can keep more of those dollars local, whether that's just by saving energy on our bills or producing energy that we could sell to somebody else. Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, even even thinking about electric vehicles and how 
You know, I've got solar on my roof. We have solar at our business. And that solar is powering the electricity we're using. And it's also powering our vehicles. So we're not buying a lot of polluting fossil fuel from economies that don't like us. And it ends up also being cheaper, which is really, at the end of the day, what moves the needle very quickly on deployment of these new technologies. What's happening, and there's two really big issues that are really going on that change the economics for rooftop solar and DG. One is net metering, and the other is the ITC. What's happening with net metering here in the U.S., and where is that going to go? So net metering is, is that you know basic policy that says that when I'm producing energy from my home or business, that I essentially can turn my meter backwards. And then at the end of the month, I only have to pay the net amount of electricity I use, you know, the amount I consume minus the amount I produce. And it's been the sort of cornerstone of how we compensate people for producing energy at a local level for 30 years. And it's largely under attack in at least a half dozen or a dozen or two dozen states. Facilities are looking at ways to reduce that value for customers, whether it's and trying to cap net metering, trying to add fees to customers to participate in net metering, essentially to make doing production on homes less economical, solar production on businesses less economical. So it's really under threat. Yeah, I mean, we're seeing that happening, and you know, the, the reasons for it really are the utilities are getting their backs up against the wall. Yes, so I see that the utilities are kind of doing everything they can to change net metering. Why don't you let our listeners know a little bit about what you see happening in Hawaii and how net metering is changing and how that's going to change the benefits of solar for Hawaiian businesses and consumers? Well, I've always loved how people describe Hawaii as as this postcard from the future, that because of their unique circumstances as an island importing oil to produce electricity, electricity being very expensive, the economics for distributed energy like solar are so much different or so much ahead of the curve. And what's happened in Hawaii is actually just in the past few weeks, the utility commission there, the regulators have agreed to let utilities to stop offering net metering and instead to offer a different price to compensate people who produce solar. So now I buy all of my power from the utility as I normally would. And rather than using the solar on my property to offset my energy use, um, by getting credits on my bill, a kilowatt hour for kilowatt hour, I'm going to get paid a, a much lower rate, about 15 cents per kilowatt hour instead of maybe 30 cents per kilowatt hour for the solar energy I produce. And unfortunately, I think and have written that I, I think that it's that they came up with doesn't really reflect the actual value of that solar energy to the utility. It, it was a proxy. It was a number that they came up with based on some other things. And I think in the end, what it means is that people who are producing solar energy at the local level in Hawaii are not getting paid with the full value of their energy as worth by the utility any longer. So basically, the utility is getting a free ride clearly on the, the generating investment that homeowners have made. Now, are the existing solar customers in Hawaii affected by these new rates, or do these new rates only apply to new solar customers? So the, the people who have already been doing net metering are grandfathered in. So fortunately, we're not seeing a really bad kind of policy that is retroactively applied. But any new customer effective within 
well, it was essentially effective immediately. Anybody who was in the queue well, was still going to be able to use net metering, but any new projects are going to have to use this new scheme that is more like a, for folks who are familiar, a feed-in tariff where you buy all your energy from the utility and you'll sell it all at a different price. So the difference really is it used to be you buy at 30 cents a kilowatt hour and you were able to sell back at 30 cents a kilowatt hour. I think that's a, a pretty good deal because you're, you're selling power back to the utility at peak times when they need it. But now the deal is you, you only get to sell back at 15 cents a kilowatt hour, which really seems to be onerous. Uh, you know, Maybe if they, if they had said it was going to be 30 and 25, then people would be a lot happier. Who's really pushing for this? Is this the, the public utilities commissions just coming up with these bright ideas themselves or the Hawaii utilities really saying we want to stomp out distributed generation rooftop solar? Who's causing this? I would never want to be disrespectful, but I don't know that the phrase public utility commission coming up with bright ideas themselves has ever really applied. <laughs> um, maybe the exception of New York that is off on a, a really remarkable form of the regulatory and market structure for utilities. Uh, it's, it's really driven by the utilities. You know, their business model is generally dependent on two things. One is increasing power sales, and the other one is building more infrastructure. And when you have lots of your customers producing their own energy and reducing demand for new power plants, it's a threat. And so I think there's Hawaii is unique in the fact that the argument as the utilities make about net metering holds a little more water there. You know, you already have anywhere between 12 and 20 percent of your customers installing solar. It's become a very substantial portion of the amount of electricity generation. You do want to make sure the price is right. And I think there was some ample evidence that given the cost of solar and also the value would have to the grid that giving people full retail net metering was probably paying too much. It meant that, you know, ratepayers were going to be essentially subsidizing these solar producers by giving them more than the energy was worth to the grid. So an adjustment was necessary. But I think the utilities really ended up winning this fight by coming up with a number that is too low. I think, ironically, it's still going to work. You know, they still have a state tax incentive on top of the federal tax incentive in Hawaii, and so I would imagine that the economics are still going to be possible and, and they work out. They might not work out as well for the third-party companies that have been selling leases. And it's been the more popular structure by which people have gotten solar on their rooftop because those folks have their own margins and, and to consider. But I think for individuals who have kind of a reasonable or a, a lower rate of return requirement, at, even at 50 solar is still going to grow. Yeah, I was visiting some friends in Hawaii a few weeks ago, and basically a lot of the bigger third-party ownership companies have pulled out of Hawaii, and the local guys are still there plugging along, and I think the local guys can probably do okay. Fifteen cents isn't great. If you keep the cost down, it's okay, and if there's a tax credit, that really helps. So the next state that's kind of lined up for one of these big battles is California, where we're based here in San Jose. And, John, what do you see happening in California? Are we going to look at an outcome that's similar to Hawaii, where the utilities are basically going to prevail at the Public Utilities Commission? I do have concerns about how things will in California. I think that the, the arguments for by the utilities hold a little less water in terms of the cost differential between the value of the solar energy and then the retail rates, which are significantly lower. You know, in some ways, the utilities have already won around because I know that the 
are going to be able to sort of flatten out their rate structure, which is to say instead of having rates that reflect, you know, sort of the hourly pricing that had very high prices in the afternoon during high periods of demand are going to sort of be flattened out. And that's going to make solar less economical already because, of course, solar is producing a lot of energy during those periods, although it was sort of an impact on the margins. But I think that, you know, the utilities have a lot of power, an unfortunate pun, but I, I talk about that in terms of their economic power as monopolies gives them a lot of political power. And they wield that at the legislature. They've done that on the, you know, sort of ballot initiatives, and they're going to be throwing weight around in terms of this issue in California, and not just on the economics of solar, where I think that they've already, I think there's already been some very good pushback and some good studies showing that the economic argument is not as strong in California for reducing compensation for solar producers. But of course, they're always going to come out with a technical argument, you know, saying essentially, well, the grid can't handle more solar, or we need to do a lot of upgrades for the grid to handle more solar. And I think that's the story from Hawaii there is that, you know, utilities were able to delay a lot around those arguments until some evidence was brought to bear and, and it showed that they were wrong. And so I'm concerned that those same kind of arguments could hold some water in, in Minnesota or, sorry, California. Let's come back to what utilities can do to ameliorate any potential safety problems. Let's talk a little bit more about the California net metering issue. That I know CalSIA and SIA have been working really, really hard to make sure that what's called net metering 2.0 doesn't stop the industry in its tracks. And, you know, here in California also, if you have solar by, you know, sometime next year when net metering 2.0 goes into effect, you'll be grandfathered. But after net metering 2.0 goes into effect, your economics are going to clearly be worse. And, and now it's just a matter of, of figuring out how much worse. And, you know, it's a big battle. And I'd encourage anybody who's listening or, or hearing the podcast to communicate and send an email to the California Public Utilities Commission. There's a website called saverooftopsolarca.com, sponsored by CalSIA, to, to really let your voice known. So, yeah, we are worried that the same kind of thing is going to happen in California. There's no state tax credit so that the industry will slow down. So coming back to what utilities can do, why don't the utilities just put in battery storage or grid support equipment or other controls that are going to really facilitate this seamless, easy, safe two-way flow of power. Why don't they do that? Yeah, I think, again, it comes back to the way that we have regulated utilities, the rules that they play by, and how they make their money. So, you know, we're, we're mostly talking about when we talk about the political struggle, investor-owned utilities. These are for-profit companies. In the case of California and about 30 other states, they have a monopoly service territory, so there's no competition between them and any other company. But now, in some ways, there is competition because their customers are the producers in competition with their big central station power plants like that have been you know, gas or coal or nuclear. And so the rules that we wrote for them in this monopoly were essentially to say that you can make your money in two ways. One was by selling more energy, although California and many other states have now changed those rules to help encourage more energy efficiency. But the second piece of that was that you get, you know, a rate of return on your investment in new infrastructure. And so, you know, I think there's there's sort of an ironic twist here. On the one hand, you're right. Why don't utilities simply add equipment, which they could get recovery on, which they could get profits, you know, their 10% rate of return on? 
to encourage distributed generation. But I think they're usually more interested in how can we build the bigger power plant, the $500 million power plant that will get that rate of return on, build the transmission lines that might be required to support that, because that's a lot more shareholder return than simply adding equipment and controls to the grid to support a lot of other generators that are in competition with us. So I, I think I think the, the tension here is one that we're going to have to resolve eventually, which is that the for-profit utility doesn't see a way forward, a business model way forward to make money supporting generation by all of their customers. They see that as a threat to the way that they've always done business. And so it's it's partly a need for them to break out of their inertia, their conservative culture, and to look for those opportunities. But it also has involved, in many cases, a rewriting of the rules so that it's no longer a penalty for them to consider it. Yeah, I've been watching this for a long time, and I, I see that it takes a lot longer to even think about how to change the rules, not you know, nonetheless change the rules themselves, than the rate at which technology evolves. So, you know, it's only been over the last five or six years that people have been talking about changing the utility business model. But just over that five or six year period of time, battery storage has come into effect so that now they have to think about if they don't change the rules and if they don't adopt to kind of a new business model. In five years, people are going to have storage batteries and these storage batteries may be mobile in your car. But these storage batteries are going to allow people to capture a lot of the energy they're producing and not using during the day and use it themselves. So that's just fascinating how this whole thing's evolving. Let's transition a little bit and talk about the investment tax credit briefly. How do you see that evolving and how has the ITC, both for commercial, which is Section 48, and residential affected the growth of solar in the U.S.? Well, there's sort of two ways that it's affected the growth of solar. On the positive side, the tax credit has, of course, made solar relatively cheaper compared to other forms of electricity generation, which is to say that it's encouraged the development of more solar. And that's, you know, an unfettered good thing, especially because what we have in our system in general is that we we typically socialize the health and environmental costs of our power generation, which is to say that we don't pay for it in our electric bill. We've been paying for it through, you know, higher health costs, higher health insurance costs, environmental damage, et cetera. And so any time that we can use our government policy to encourage the development of something that removes that socialized cost is a very good thing. Now, the challenge, I think, and the problem with the ITC and using the tax code in general to do these incentives is that you tend to limit who can participate. So, you know, if it was just a cash payment, for folks who invested in solar, it would be a lot more accessible to nonprofit organizations or cities or cooperatives that don't have tax liability or even, you know, the 25 or 30 or even 50 percent of Americans who don't have enough tax liability to offset with a tax credit. And so what we ended up having happen is that, you know, the solar leasing companies, a lot of their business model was focused around how do we simplify this process for people, for the many people who who cannot find the tax credit accessible. So you have these third-party relationships with cities, with nonprofit organizations, and what it meant was that the solar ended up being a little bit more expensive for those folks than it would have been otherwise, and yet it was the only way that they could get access to that tax incentive. So it's sort of a necessary evil, but it's ultimately a less efficient way than, you know, a cash payment would have been in order to deliver those benefits. And the other thing, too, is that, you know, that leasing model 
is still only available to people who have good credit scores. You can't go as somebody who, you know, has missed a few payments or whatnot and get a solar lease, even though, you know, the, the cash flow in order to pay for that lease is going to be produced by the solar panel. You shouldn't really need a good credit score. So there's, you know, should we have tax credits or benefits for solar paid for by the federal government? Absolutely. It helps internalize those environmental costs and make the market put investments in the right place. But it's certainly not the best way we could have done it. Yeah, I think back to how we got the investment tax credit in place. I mean, the first time it happened was back in the 70s with Jimmy Carter. And it just happens to be a handy lever that policymakers can pull after extensive lobbying by the renewable energy industry to make something happen. And and we're working on that again now. You know, I I hear people talk about, oh, we don't need the tax credits. The costs are coming down, you know, so low that they're not necessary anymore. But, you know, I, I just look at our local installation costs here in California, both for commercial and residential. And even though the equipment costs are low, I mean, we can get all the equipment you need for installation for probably about a dollar and a half a watt. Our total costs are more between, you know, like $3 for commercial and sometimes $4 and over for residential. And that's because there's just a ton of bureaucracy and paperwork that we have to go through. So what do you think about some of these soft costs and our potential to eliminate those and thereby reduce the total cost of solar to commercial and residential customers? I'm very bullish on our ability to reduce those costs. I think that one of the one of the opportunities is the way that you know municipalities are changing their permitting rules, putting more things online, reducing the permitting costs to be more in line with what it actually costs the you know municipality to oversee that installation. So I think there's a lot of streamlining that's going to happen, and it really you know in markets like California where solar is maturing, I think a lot of that might have already happened to some extent, at least in some of the bigger urban areas. But I think there's a lot of places yet where they haven't kind of adopted these best practices. And I think about my home state of Minnesota, you know, our entire solar market so far has been less than 50 megawatts. We've got a lot of growth in terms of, you know, how our local regulations could be streamlined to make solar less costly and less time consuming to invest in. So I think there's a lot of opportunity there. There's some remarkable folks working on the software side to kind of figure out ways to make customer acquisition cheaper, to make it uh, less expensive to process all of the different paperwork. So I I think we have a, a huge opportunity. I, I always look at Germany on this. You know, their installed costs are often, you know, 50% of what our costs are. And I think a lot of that is the, the maturity of their market, you know, is and the experience of their installers. And also the experience of their policymakers and making sure that solar can be as simple to do as possible. So I, I think we have some remarkable opportunities to continue to drive down those non-hard work. Yeah, I've been, I'm enthusiastic about the potential there, too. I see it happening on a very scattershot basis. And there are some jurisdictions where solar is a lot easier. San Jose is great. And then I can go to a nearby community like Fremont. And we are you know, afraid of doing installations in Fremont because there's all these surprises. It can take so long. My dream would really be some kind of national policy on soft costs that, that could really reduce these things. But, you know, we'll, we'll see where we can get. Well, uh, that's all the time we've got on this week's Energy Show. Thanks, John, for joining us today. And thanks to all of our listeners. If you missed any of today's show, you can always go to our website at cinnamonsolar.com and listen to the podcast. Mm-hmm.